Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, and thank you for following us down the rabbit hole. My name is Nicolette Jones. I am, among other things, the children's books editor of the Sunday Times. And I'm thrilled to be here on this hallowed ground uh, to discuss Visions of Alice with a panel that is fabulously authoritative, and indeed authoritative about the fabulous. Full details of the eminence of these participants is on your programme flyer, but just to single some out. Professor Dame Gillian Beer is an emeritus professor of two Cambridge colleges. Uh, she's been chair of the Judges of the Booker Prize. She's a prolific author of subjects ranging from Darwin to science and culture to Virginia Woolf. And she's been thinking about Alice in Wonderland ever since she first read it at the age of seven. She's published a collected and annotated edition of Carol's poems, and her new book, Alice in Space, The Sideways Victorian World of Lewis Carroll, comes out this autumn. Helen Melody, on my left, distinguished li uh, literary archivist, is the curator of the current British Library Alice in Wonderland exhibition, which is free in the foyer until the 17th of April, and features Lewis Carroll's original manuscript with his drawings and illustrations and spin-offs right up to the present day. And illustrator and animator Graham Baker-Smith incorporates digital techniques into his images, which is apt in the context of Wonder.land. He won the prestigious Kate Greenaway Medal for his picture book, Father, spelt with an R in the middle, and he was commissioned by the Royal Mail to produce a set of stamps for the 150th anniversary of Alice in Wonderland. A big welcome to them all. You doubtless all know that Alice was born on a summer's day in 1862 in a tale told by Carol to the uh, little girls on a river trip. At their urging, Alice's in particular, Alice Little's in particular, he wrote it down. And he created a small private edition of Alice, Alice's Adventures Underground, with 37 of his own drawings. As Alice in Wonderland and illustrated by punch cartoonist John Tenniel, it was first published in 1866. And it's been reimagined in ways that reflect the times ever since. But before we consider what these ways are, a question to you all. Uh, although the original text is very much full of wordplay and ideas, it's also full of strong images. Uh, do you think the imaginative vision of Lewis Carroll is what's made Alice in Wonderland such an enduring book for us all? Can I ask you, Helen? Yes, I think that actually one of the things I noticed when I was putting the exhibition together is that the text is so fabulous, what it describes is so wonderful, that you are sucked into the text, and that is its enduring power. But yet it doesn't describe what people look like, it doesn't describe how the characters are dressed, so a lot of that is your imagination, and I think that's part of the, the power of a good children's book, is that it allows you a certain amount for yourself to really think about. And it created space for everybody to reimagine it in their own way. Definitely, presumably, yes. Uh, what do you feel about this, Gillian? I think I'd see it rather differently because um, one of the oddities about the original Alice with the Tenniel illustrations is that it, 
it shapes our understanding, our, uh, uh, what we see of Alice. We don't come, usually we come with our own imagined. Uh, but here we've been told what she looks like, here she is. And she looks completely different, of course, from Alice Liddell, the original um, inspiration, who was a small, dark, elvish girl with a little smile like this, whereas this Alice is very upright and blonde and composed. And I've always found that an intriguing difference, so that in a way, the Alice Little is, as it were, your hidden person who you bring in. But Alice, is, she's very peremptory, she's right there. Um, but all those other images, all the other strange creatures in it, which yes. often evolve out of a kind of wordplay, a kind of joke suddenly creates a mad imaginative creature. Um, do you think that's that's the power yeah, of the book? I think, yeah, reading it, um, even if you didn't have any pictures at all in the book, as an illustrator, it conjures up so many amazing scenes mm -hmm. that it is an absolute gift for uh, an artist or an illustrator. I, I think one of the interesting things about it is that actually we don't remember the characters who weren't illustrated. I mean, for instance, who thinks about the pigeon who falls <laughs> down the chimney? True. There are characters in the book that Tenniel never really bothered with. There was a pigeon in it. There was a pigeon in it. <laughs> See, who knew? I missed that. <laughs> but the pigeon who attacks Alice when she's got the yes, long neck. In the and <laughs> yes, indeed. And um. th those characters have disappeared, so it does suggest that the illustrations were something that helped preserve it um, for all time. Uh, can I ask you, Helen, to tell us, to describe to us the very first uh, illustrations that Carol did himself? Yes, certainly. So I'm not sure how many people will have seen Alice's Adventures Underground. It's been digitised and it's on the library's website, so you can go home and have a look for yourself and judge how successful you feel the illustrations are. But what is wonderful about them, as Julian said, is they are very different. They are much closer to Alice Little. They are not directly Alice Little. Um, Carol's Alice has long brown hair. She's been seen as more pre-Raphaelite, perhaps, than other, in, certainly than Tenniel's interpretation. And um, Carol is said to have been inspired by Arthur Hughes, the artist, and he had one of Hughes's paintings, and there's been seen um, some kind of... Um, connections perhaps between the artwork of the two different individuals. Um, they are very different in some cases. Um, some are more accomplished than others. Um, Carol himself, didn't. Uh, my understanding is he didn't feel very confident as an illustrator. And I think you see that in the illustrations and the fact it took two years to create the whole manuscript. But then it was a, it was a personal and a private thing, so it didn't really need a professional illustrator until it came to the proper publication. Certainly. So tell us a bit about uh, Tenniel's illustrations. Now, because he was a political cartoonist, he was going to be somebody who expressed his times. How yes. does that manifest itself in his illustrations to Alice in Wonderland? Um, I think one of the things that attracted Lewis Carroll to him was probably not so much the political cast of what he did, but rather this extraordinary intricacy of the detail in what he accomplished, what he represented. There certainly are one or two little um, directly political um, ornamentations, as it were. In the railway scene in Looking Glass um, has 
the little girls sitting there um, in it looking like something out of an, a Millet picture. And it also has a rather Disraeli-like figure in the carriage. But on the whole, he doesn't advance the political as much as you might have thought he would. Um, there are lots of other ways in which he does um, extend the book. And I'll talk about that when I look at the image, in fact. Yes, well, shall we have a look at some? Um, let's see if we can, we can have a look at some of the things. Thank you, Mike. Um, yes, OK, so what I did was to take a couple of pen punch cartoons from the years when he was writing, Lewis Carroll was writing. Um, and you notice that this little girl is very Alice-like, a little bit plumper, um, but very much the little Alice girl. And here we have this rather affected son, this big brother, who is saying to her, um, Oh, I don't know if I can read it at that angle, come to think of it. Somebody uh, else oh, Clara, you should have seen the pantomimes that I have seen. These modern affairs aren't half so good. There's very much a suggestion he's just out of bridge, into breeches. He's very proud of his large trousers, you notice. And you remember that little Victorian boys were in dresses until they were six or so. So this is his emergence into manhood and he's determined to have the most of it. Yes, so there's that one, and then the next one. This I like very much, and this does have, I think, a nice little uh, um, connection to Lewis Carroll. It's late from the schoolroom, and Minnie is saying to her governess, I'm reading such a pretty tale. There she sits, so good, little boy with his picture book, just like Alice said, you must have pictures in conversation. She's got the conversation, he's got the pictures, and he's got the little fluff, the, the little dog beside him. And the, the snooty governess says, you must say narrative, not tale. And she says, oh, look, ma'am, how um, Fluff, or whatever his name is, is sh waving his narrative. <laughs> and of course, there we can hear the seed of that joke um, of the mouse's tail. Is it a tale? Is it a story? Or is it, as um, Lewis Carroll has it imagined, waving down, smaller and smaller down the page, like a mouse's tail, which is how she conceives it. So those are just two of them. So Neither clearly, of them by tenure, I should say. Um, mm. So clearly there was an affinity. If, uh, if tenure was already playing on words, yes. he was already drawing a little Alice-like mm. girl. Um, yes. yes. You can see why Carol might have yes. responded. Yeah. Mm. And here. The, this is really just to show the way in which sometimes we do get a, a realisation of some absolute nonsense, impossible, imagined creature. Um, this is... I'm just trying to find my particular bit of this. Um, this is, of course, these creatures who come straight out of Jabberwocky. Um, they're the slithy toves who gar and gimble in the wabe. And they're said by Humpty Dumpty when he's interpreting that they're a bit like badgers. Um, and they're also, they have these corkscrews. They're a bit like corkscrews. Now, I won't go into it now because we haven't got time. But in fact, corkscrews were a matter of extreme fascination to mathematicians at the time. 
And there's certainly something that Lewis Carroll was interested in and which he shared discussions. So there's a, a, a further joke, as there very often is, between them, um, which is taking just a little bit further what's in the text and giving it a push in the illustration. And it's very interesting because uh, one of the influences on the designer of Wanda.Land mm. is a video game called Monument Valley, which um, includes impossible mathematical shapes and sort of Isha-like lands, um, yes. constructions, buildings. Um, it's very interesting that he picked that up. And in fact, you have talked earlier about how there, were there was a kind of math mathematical revolution going on at the point when uh, Carroll wrote uh, Alice in Wonderland, uh, a refutation of classical Euclidean yes. geometry and yes. a whole new set of ideas about shapes and so on, which has worked its way into it. So it's very appropriate that this new production should also play with mathematical That's shapes. That's true. Yes, there is a connection there. And we tend to think of the non-Euclidean um, geometries having come in in the 20th century, but actually it was the 1850s when there was an absolute set two of controversy around them. And Lewis Carroll, what in his professional guise, was a devoted Euclidean, but when you get to Alice, he starts to experiment and try out all these contrary ideas. Yeah. That's interesting, because the other thing I think is clear in Alice is that it was revolutionary about attitudes to morality and attitudes to childhood, mm. that books up until then had a very strict code, and he broke all the rules. Um, so there was a revolutionary thing in another sense. Mm -hmm. And what we, what we see in all the, the illustrations to Alice is uh, a development in attitudes to childhood mm. as, well as, uh, as well as in this. So just tell us a little bit about the attitudes to childhood at the time of Carol, and then we'll move on. He was a revolutionary in one sense, that almost all the pedagogic books for children were highly moralistic, and little children got punished if they did the wrong thing, and good children were always rewarded, and so on. And, of course, what he does is to have Alice go in, down into Wonderland, and she can't remember any of those proper Isaac Watts songs. They've all turned into praise of um, the wrong creatures. There's the crocodiles with his smiling jaws. There's the feeling that everything is suddenly allowed, everything is licensed. But this is also scary, I think, for... Alice, and it's part of what he's really probing about a child's development, that you need rules because she gets very lonely down there because if there are no rules, she's always the odd one. She's the odd one out. She's not like any of these other creatures. She's an, the anomaly. So she is seeking company, and rules give you company. They give you a kind of ordinate world. So there's a tug going on in both books, I think, between rule-seeking and rule-breaking. Did you think of Alice as a rebel when you were illustrating her, Graham? As a rebel? Um, <coughs> she, she is a sort of a voice of reason in the mad world of Wonderland. Mm. It seemed to me that, that everything else was behaving like complete nut jobs, And uh, she... she had retained some sort of sense of uh, what was right and wrong, what you could do and couldn't do. But um, for me, it was mainly, to begin with anyway, a design problem, because we're, we're talking about books and all the, the many, many editions there have been, of which there are hundreds. 
but for me, I was designing for something that was ultimately going to be 30 millimeters square. So uh, for, I was thinking, how do I fit the tea party into something like that, you know, <laughs> with four or five creatures in it um, and a full sea tea service? Um, and so I, my main problem was really to try and portray it in a way that would actually make any impact at that at that size, because the creatures and the characters are so alive, are so vibrant, you feel you have to do, do them on a big scale, at least a page of a book. Well, we're going to come back and look at how successful you were at doing that in the tiny space oh uh, in a moment. <laughs> but I just want to um, go back a little bit to the chronology of what happened when. Um, 1907, a big moment of, of revolution in uh, illustrations to Alice because that's when it came out of copyright. Yes, so in 1907, any illustrator who wished to could produce their own edition of the story. And you see something like 20 editions coming out in 13 years, which is quite remarkable. And I think it really speaks to the popularity of the book, but there were so many people waiting in the wings to get their editions out. Can we see a couple of them? Mike? Certainly. I think we've got some. So, um, Mike? one of the editions that, um, one of the things that came out in yeah. um, 1907 was Arthur Rackham. It's very, very beautiful, um, watercolored edition. I particularly love this, this picture. Um, Rackham, interestingly, now seen as this sort of 20th century golden age of children's literature illustration, was criticized for his edition of this book. People said, well, it's not enough like Tenniel, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is interesting in itself, really. And so the story goes, he said, well, I'm not going to do through the looking glass then. What a pity. Which so is it put him off. It yeah, off doing it certainly else. did. And that is the thing about criticism. That is a real shame, isn't it? It's a real mm. shame. Um, and the next image, which is perhaps less well-known illustrator today, this is um, Charles Robinson, again, 1907. And I think what you start to see is the creeping in of fashion and different depictions of Alice. So Alice in her sailor dress is a very Edwardian image. Mm -hmm. And Charles Robinson was the brother of the illustrator Heath Robinson as well. So this is a sort of a family of uh, illustrators. Very beautiful. And I think the main thing that you see in this period is that some illustrators choose to simply re-illustrate Tenniel's scenes, because, mm. probably because of a fear of criticism. Mm. Others move further afield. So in our exhibition, we have W.H. Walker's edition from the same year, which actually shows something which is not in, in tenure. So Carol describes the hare's house as having rabbit ears and a furry roof, and Walker chose to draw that. So you start to see people becoming braver as time goes on. And, but the, another thing they did, of course, was change... Um, th they, they demonstrated different attitudes to how children's books should look. So that we got, in, the in about 1910, we got Mabel Lucy Atwell. Yes. Uh, one or two very cosy-looking Yes, images. so uh, I felt, and my colleague, when we were putting the exhibition together, that the 20s and 30s was interesting because it was sweet. So Wonderland was no longer the slightly politicised world of Tenniel. Mm. It was quite sweet. Actually, to modernise, I think some of it's a little bit creepy. <laughs> now, because of that change of tone, yeah. we've got a wonderful, it's called a panorama, and you kind of open it, and it has an early sort of pop-up effect from 19, I think, 1930 by um, A. Bowley, and it's very nice, and it's very pretty, but every character is a child. 
the executioner is a child, and also the Duchess is quite pretty, which is very much not what Tenure would have wanted. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I, I wondered whether this is the political period, the difficulty of the time, the interwar years, and perhaps a wish to have a slightly less dark vision for your children. Yes, yeah, something reassuring after the First World War. Certainly. Yes, and then of course in the 60s we got uh, Salvador Dali's impersonation. Fantastic, yes. Not surprisingly, appealed mm. to the Surrealists. Mm. Um, and uh, in uh, 1969, I think uh, Ralph Steadman did. Yes, so you start to see more politicised mm. um, vision coming back in. And I think in our exhibition we have Steadman next to Disney for a very nice juxtaposition. Um, and Steadman, I think, famously said that he based his characters on people he knew, which mm -hmm. he said is what Tenu, um, what Carol did. He based them on people he knew, but his white rabbit is a commuter. His, um, the, ro the cards that paint the rosebushes are trade union members, and the lobster wears an old school tie. So he got as many politicised visions <laughs> in as he could. Class, <laughs> from the sound of it, came back into it. Class yeah, issues. Yeah, definitely. Class, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Which is interesting because earlier on in the Victorian age, w w was class an issue in those, in those images? Would people have thought of Alice as a particular social... Oh, I think so, yes. I think she was seen as a sort of upper-middle-class little girl. And, uh, but he, he, both of them, Tenniel and Carol, are partly joking with all those class questions because Alice imagines at the beginning that her class will save her because she thinks, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm better than Mabel, who uh, lives in that pokey little house and who has no education. I can't be Mabel. But who is she? She doesn't know who she is anymore. She's not Mabel, but who is she then? And then she thinks her learning will save her, but that won't quite do. So Alice has to find her way through all sorts of ideas about who she is. And I thought that was one of the interesting things with the musical Wonderland, that it took up that theme of identity. Who am I? Yes. How do I know who I am? I, f I found that totally fascinating as well, that mm. uh, this central question, who are you, which is mm. as relevant now and something we ask ourselves as much now, mm. was being asked in that way then. And this is a time when Darwin's theories were first coming to light. Isn't yes, it? yes. Uh, I find that extraordinary that, you know, we were, they were asking that question, who are we then? Are we ape? Are we mm. fish or what? Mm. So are we dodo? Yeah. I mean, the reassuring thing, of course, is the dodo comes to life again and is a rather managerial presence and Wouldn't that be yeah, gets everything. <laughs> everybody yeah. gets prizes. I, I like that joke, you know, that yeah. instead of natural selection where not everybody gets prizes and certainly not dodos, at the yeah. end of the, uh, the um, caucus race, they all We're get all prizes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, that, <coughs> that, I think, is... Um, as you say, uh, the, the, the caterpillar's question, who are you, mm. is one, again one of the reasons, <coughs> apart from the illustrations, <coughs> why the book has endured, because it, it's an enduring, enduring question. Um, we can't scoot through everything else that happened. Lots of notable illustrators, modern illustrators like Robert Ingpen and Anthony Brown and Emily Clark, um, Elizabeth Fager, John Vernon Lord, but I think we have got some Helen Oxenbury. Um, so just have a quick look at hers. <coughs> if we may. And again, this is another <coughs> case of perhaps make, taking the weird and psychedelic and strange, um, which was very popular in the 1960s and 70s, out of Alice and making her 
friendly and accessible again. Let's yes. just see a few more of them. I think what you really start to see maybe after the post-war period is that you can have so many image Alice's. You can have your dark yes. Alice that's for an adult audience. You can have your Alice that's more identifiable to a yes. 21st century Keep going, Mike. Child. Let's just scoot through some. Thank you. As we were talking about Arthur Hughes earlier, um, the last image I have is an Arthur Hughes illustration, not of Alice. Yes. Perhaps we could just show that there's in that sequence of illustrations from Tenniel, and then um, there's a joke where it, there's a melee. Oh, sorry, I didn't interrupt, please. Um, next one. Yes. Now, this is a melee from 1871, The Knight Errant. Okay, next one. And this is, as it were, the Alice reading of that same kind of episode. Um, instead of the, the male saviour, it's Alice who's doing the saving, and she's pulling him out of the ditch upside down. Next one. Ah, yes, that's, we don't really need it, except that that's a, one that he loved. But this is the interesting one, Arthur Hughes. And um, Lewis Carroll thought that Arthur Hughes probably wasn't good enough at the grotesque to do Through the Looking Glass, which he, he half wanted him to do it. But this, I think, is actually an example of abjection. Here, this girl who looks so like Alice, you'd never see Alice lying like that with a monster about to overtake her. Mm. And it's really, to me, signals what's not there in the Alice books, yes. the things that are excluded. That she's strong. Mm. Yes, how interesting. Um, Graham, you've been very patient. Let's, let's have a look at what you have done for now um, in the stamps, if we can go ahead if possible, to this amazing array. Remember how Wonderful. small these are, that we're looking <laughs> at them um, blown up. And they hold that's up big. That's well weird, seeing them at that size, I must say. Yes, that is fantastic. <laughs> and they look wonderful. Tell us a little bit about what you say, there was the, there was the challenge of making yeah. them small, but there's also the challenge of separating yourself from all that history. Yeah, um, I tried not to remember things, uh, sort of disremembering everything and, and not look at too many illustrators. I have since, because it was just interesting to do so. Um, but the Royal Mail asked me to do this because they'd seen my work. So I, f after the initial panic, it's sort of, you have the, the euphoria of the phone call. Mm. You know, <laughs> the Royal Mail wants me to take part in this. And, and to begin with, you're one of five illustrators who are all having a go at the stamps, the first two or three. Yeah. Um, and then it gets whittled down slowly. So, but anyway, there's this initial punching the air and jumping around the room, going, yeah, I can pay my mortgage next month. And, and then um, the panic starts, and you think, oh, my God, it's Alice, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then you just try, I just try to forget about all of that. And I thought, they've, they've asked me to do this because of, they've seen my work, they know what I do, so I basically just have to play my natural game. Mm -hmm. And um, with the added uh, problems of working at that size, one of the things, of course, that's interesting is because you do use uh, digital processes, yeah. um, you also have that in common with this particular yeah. production. That's that was what was so interesting about seeing this, the way they, they treated the digital side of it, and it's very much about, you know, who are you in a digital world? Yes. And that's what was so interesting about that, the, the, the sort of core of Alice, the concept of Alice, if you like, 
I think that's one of its enduring, its enduring power is, is that question again, isn't it? That is as relevant now in the digital age uh, as it was then, and it probably always has been. Can we have a little look at some particular instances? Which were the two stamps that you submitted to begin with? Do you say you had to start that with? One. That one. Oh yeah. <laughs> Good. Good timing. Got you the job, yes. <laughs> that was the very first one that I, I um, submitted to them as a finished piece of work. Yes. And, um, and they seemed to really like that. Uh, so Alice in the background underwent several versions, though. I couldn't quite get it right. In fact, there were, there were a couple that were really problematic. The Tea Party. Um, which is probably which I think the third, third slide in. But that one I loved doing. I loved, I, I, you know, some of them went really, really well. That was a, a couple of days' work. It was just a sheer joy. But the tea party was a nightmare. And it was one of the first ones I had to do in the commission. And it was the last one to be finished because they just couldn't get them to work altogether. Maybe it's the next one. And were you thinking of trying to make a modern girl? Or were you thinking about the traditional look of Alice at the same time as trying to avoid it? It's, it's hard to escape the, the long shadow of Tenniel. Mm -hmm. And those images are sort of imprinted on your brain from way back anyway, so you can't really escape them. But I wasn't really trying to make a, a, a modern girl because um, one thing that strikes me when I, when I look at photographs from the Victorian age is that how, with a slightly different hairstyle, they would look like somebody who lives next door, wouldn't they? So. Yes. What is a modern person, you know? We just respond to the time we're born in, but we're the same, aren't we, as, as them? So, and Lily was the muse, so, you know. <laughs> I, suppose, I suppose these are images for the modern age because of the technique, because they used, because yeah. they used digital processes in, order, in the making. Yeah, I guess that, you know, in Victorian age, you used what was around, and now um, I use drawing, painting, a bit of photography to make textures. And everything gets put into Photoshop and sort of, I don't know, collaged together in, in, in that. Um, just any further <coughs> thoughts about the way this new production, Gillian, fits in with the tradition of the themes of, or the preoccupations of the Victorians? Is it a completely uh, yes. different thing? The one major difference, I think, is that in um, Wonderland, the original, all the bullying that takes place takes place within Wonderland and the return home is a great relief. At the beginning her sister is not taking any notice of her and that's how Alice gets into Wonderland but at the end the sister says oh come inside it's time for your tea. So there's that sort of whereas in the modern Wonderland all the bullying is taking place right here and now among her and her yes. friends. And that did make it very threatening, I thought. Yes, mm. yes that's interesting. And Wonderland is actually a world of escape yes. from, well, there's a certain kind yes. of complication about That's right, but, 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 it, but Wonderland is more of an escape yes. in the modern version. Yes. Um, whereas in, in the Victorian version, it actually is where the bullying is happening. But mm. what was interesting about it was it ultimately it isn't an escape, is it? Because no. she, she comes back to the, the, real, the real thing that yeah. uh, is her own human life with her family. Perhaps yes. what that tells us is that yes. we, we live in a world where we somehow want to get We're away to our fantasies. We think that's going to fulfil us in some yes. way, but actually it's the, the things that have always been which are our connections. 
Yes. I'm really sorry to say <coughs> that we have run out of time. Um, both Gillian and Graham will be signing their books about Carol and uh, your picture book um, uh, by the bookstore. If you would like to go and have another private chat with them, do that while they're signing. It just remains for me to say thank you very much indeed to Helen and Gillian and Graham for their wonderful insights. Mm. I wish you could have talked for longer. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.